It is my privilege this morning to uh, share the Word of God with you and to rejoice with you and to worship the Lord together. For those of you who don't know, my name is Mike McGinty. My wife and I were missionaries in Japan for over 30 years. I know it's hard to believe I'm that old, particularly you look at my wife, but uh, it is true. And uh, we are now back in the States here after a long time in Japan, and we're mobilizing new workers for Japan is a God is the task he's given to us now. An important word for us as missionaries is the term contextualization. It's a long word. Contextualization mainly basically means to go into another place and to adapt it to their ways of doing things in order to relate to them, the way you speak, the way you address in various ways. So we did that for 34 years in Japan. We tried to contextualize. Now we're back in America, specifically we're in Texas now, and trying to contextualize again. So as you can imagine, I knew I was going to be preaching today. In the past few weeks, I've been observing those who are preaching ahead of me, trying to prepare for contextualization. How do I fit in? And then just a few weeks ago, Jonathan Chang preached, and he was up here wearing yellow Crocs and shorts with a Texas flag theme and a T-shirt. And I thought, I don't think I can take contextualization that far. (laughs) But Jonathan can. He's cool with that kind of stuff. But I want you to know, I did make an attempt for contextualization today, and I have my shirt tail tucked out. (laughs) This is the first time I have preached with my shirt tail out, so I want a little credit here. But please, I ask you at this point, do not tell the Japanese pastors I preach with my shirt tail out, and do not tell them I preach without a tie. You're all warned to secrecy today on that matter. Now, we were in Japan recently, And without bragging, I'd like to just quickly mention that 127 million Japanese celebrated me. Now, what was that all about? It was Keido no Hi, which means respect for the elderly day. (laughs) So there were some other people that were being celebrated as well. But anyway, I know it's hard for some of you to wrap your minds around the idea that I've moved into that elderly category. I was once a young, stupid youth pastor here. Now I'm just stupid, I'm older, and actually turned 69 a couple of weeks ago, so it is happening. If that makes you feel bad, get over it. But uh, Japan has other days that it celebrates. It has a boy's day, it has a girl's day, it has a becoming an adult day when you're 20 years old, it has a father's day, a mother's day. They have a day for everybody in Japan, and no one is left out. But as we all know, we're gathered here today we have an important day coming up in America, and that is Thanksgiving Day. It's a very important day in our history and in our lives. But here, Thanksgiving has lost a lot of its meaning, sad to say. The big three of Thanksgiving is now turkey, football, and family. And in recent years, as I observe America, another fourth has emerged in this that's now equally important, and that is pumpkin spice. Now, where pumpkin spice came in, I don't know, but it is obviously important to many Americans, so I'm trying. I'm trying. But what is Thanksgiving? And I'm not talking just about the holiday. What does it mean to be thankful? What about the practice of Thanksgiving? How do we do that? How should we do it? How do we cultivate a thankful heart? I just realized I don't have the controls for the PowerPoint slides up here. You want to get that for me? But how do we cultivate a thankful heart? If you look at the next slide, 
it says Psalm 103, verse 2, and it says, Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Praise the Lord and forget not all of his benefits. These are what God has asked us to do. We are to be thankful. We're to remember that all God has done for us and to remember his benefits on our behalf. But perhaps we are not so good at that. And perhaps we need something to help us illustrate that. So I'm going to use an old standard illustration this morning since I'm getting old myself. And that is a glass half full of water, which I have up here. Thank you. And so we want to talk about is the glass half full or is it half empty? Is the glass half full for you this morning or is it half empty? And I'm not just talking about personality types. I'm talking about how do we perceive life? How do we reflect this back to God and express these things to him? It is a problem of perception for the most part. Now, we in Houston here have something to celebrate recently. We are world champions again in baseball. We're excited about that. It's a new feeling for us. It's the second time still getting over this. But the glass has not always been half full for us Houston fans, has it? We won't talk about the Texans today or the Rockets. We know where that glass is. But the glass has not always been half full for us as Houston Astro fans. So I want to take us down memory lane back to the 2005 National League Division playoffs between the Atlanta Braves and the Houston Astros October 9, 2005, when the Astros did not have a very full glass in their history. And so we want to talk about that, and I want you to participate with me this morning as Astro fans, cheering when you think it's appropriate, booing when you think that's appropriate as well. And we're going to go back in this day of history to understand this concept of thankfulness. So we begin the game. It's the third inning. Most of you have forgotten the details. And it starts like your typical Astro game back then. And the Atlanta Braves hit a grand slam. And, whoops, going back. Actually, hit a grand slam. Scores four to zip. And all God's people say, boo. Okay, you're with me, crowd. All right, so now we're back understanding what it means to be a Houston Astro fan again. And we get to the fifth inning, and things are looking up. Nope, they score another run, and God's people say, all right, now we're going with it. It's okay, we're now in the typical Astros game. We're at the bottom of the fifth inning, and lo and behold, the Astros score a run, and we say, the glass is half full. Okay, we're going. And then we get to the eighth inning, and Atlanta scores another run, and you say, ooh, the glass is definitely half empty. But we get to the bottom of the eighth inning, and lo and behold, the Astros hit their own grand slam courtesy of, of a town, hometown favorite, Lance Berkman, and we say, glass is half full again, baby. Okay, but now we're at the ninth inning. We're still down by one, two outs, and we have Brad Osmus, our catcher batting. He does not know what a baseball bat is for, but he miraculously hits a home run, and the score is tied, and you say, hey, the glass is half full again. Amen. But then we go into extra innings. This game is not over with. Tenth inning, eleventh inning, twelfth inning, all the way to the eighteenth inning. It becomes the longest game in playoff history. And then Chris Burke, who probably none of you remember, hits a home run, and the Astros win seven to six and go on to the playoffs, and we say, amen. Okay, all right, very exciting. This was the longest playoff game. Our team won. We're excited. We're thankful. 
our glass is half full. And they went on to the World Series, but they lost, but we won't talk about that. But let's take this analogy a step further. Let's go back to the glass half empty, half full analogy, but let's take it down to regular life. Let's suppose you got a raise in your salary and the glass would be half full for you. But suppose instead of that, you lost your job, then the glass is half empty. But let's suppose in your family, you could announce the birth of a baby. Your glass is definitely half full then and other things are full too. But let's suppose instead of that, you're diagnosed with cancer, then the glass is half empty. What if your rich aunt gave you a new car? Glass is half full that day. But what instead, you received a speeding ticket. But what if you we went out for dinner and you had sushi and steak for dinner? Or what if you went home and your loving wife cooked you liver and Brussels sprouts? That would definitely be a half glass full experience for me. Trying to make the point is that circumstances unduly shape our potential for being thankful. If I ask you if your glass is half full or half empty this morning, you might think through the experiences of your day today or yesterday, and you give a response based upon your circumstances. But how do we cultivate a thankful heart? To understand that and the importance of it, I'd like to turn to a familiar story in Luke chapter 17, 11 to 19, and read that to you, and then we'll talk about it. Luke 17, 11 to 19 says, now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back. Praising God in a loud voice, he threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go, your faith has made you well. What does this simple story have to tell us about the whole idea a thanksgiving and how we should be thankful. We notice that we look at the background here, the story mentions that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. This is important to note because this is the last time Jesus would travel to Jerusalem. There, rejection by his own people, torture, and death on the cross awaited him. And this had to be in the forefront of his thinking. And he passes through the area of Samaria. And that's important because many times the Jews would go out of their way to avoid Samaria and having anything to do with the despised Samaritans. But Jesus made time to meet with the express need of lepers and with a foreigner here. And we had the important principle come up that Jesus came for the marginalized. Jesus came to meet lepers, Samaritans, tax collectors, prostitutes, the poor. Time and time again we see in scripture Jesus going out of his way to help those who are the marginalized. He crossed physical and social boundaries to help others. And that is important because perhaps today, when we draw near to this time, official time of Thanksgiving, you feel on the outside looking in, and you've been left out, and all the good things are happening to someone else, but not to you. But Jesus cares for you. Jesus sees you. Jesus wants to bless you. 
Jesus cares for those on the outside, for the marginalized. But as we continue on the story, we know that Jesus encountered 10 lepers that day. And the rules for leprosy, or a lot is said about leprosy in the Old Testament, particularly in Leviticus 13 and 14. There you're told if you think you have leprosy or a skin condition you're concerned about, you go to the priest, he examines you, and he determines whether you have leprosy or not. And then, if you have leprosy, you're considered physically and ceremonially unclean. You are outside the camp physically and metaphorically. You're instructed to wear torn clothing. You're told not to to do anything to fix up your hair. You're not to groom your hair. You're supposed to isolate from others, and when you approach people, you're to give them fair warning that you have leprosy. Healing, uh, leprosy was then also, uh, if it was healed, it was verified by the priest in another examination, and you went through a purification ceremony, we're told. But leprosy was viewed as a punishment from God, and in certain cases it was in the Old Testament. But the curing of leprosy was also recognized as an identifying sign that the Messiah had come. When John's disciples approached Jesus in, in Luke chapter 7, and they said, are you the one we should expect? And Jesus said, the blind can see, the lame can walk, demons are being cast out, and lepers have been cleansed. Evidence that God is among you. The Son of God has come, and you should be aware of this, and I am he. And this was evidence that Jesus was the Son of God. But these men had a request for Jesus, and the request was rather simple. It was, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. It's a vague request. Are they asking for money? Are they asking for food? Are they asking for healing? It doesn't say, but they're obviously expressing faith in Jesus. And the principle here is that the marginalized seem better positioned to recognize Jesus and to believe in him. Rather than just feeling sorry for them, all these poor people, they are in a position to recognize their destitute need. Things are not going well for me. I need help. And they're looking around, not to themselves, but looking up to God in many cases. And they recognize Jesus when many people did not notice him and they believed in him. And so they came to Jesus for help. And Jesus' response to them was rather simple. He said, go show yourselves to the priests. Go show yourselves to the priests. Nothing is said here about healing, but it's implied, because that was the only reason they would go to the priest, is that they thought they were healed, and the priest would then verify it. And the same protocol is given in Luke chapter 5, verse 14, where another leper had been healed by Jesus, and Jesus told him, go show yourself to the priest and offer sacrifices as a testimony to him. So it wasn't just to be have your uh, healing verified, it was also to be a testimony to the religious leaders that God is in your midst. God has shown up. The Messiah has come. And this is proof of who he is. Go show yourself to the priest. Well, as we continue on with the story, we know the results in that all were healed. Only, but only one returned. And this is where the story hits a pivotal point. Only one returned. Many times in Jesus' parables or in stories, there is a surprise element where the story goes in a completely different direction than what you expect. And this is what is happening here. You would think all ten would come back with thankful hearts, jumping up and down with excitement, but only one returns. On top of that, we're told that the person who returned is a Samaritan. The, worst, the one you least expected to return, because they think so poorly of the Samaritans, the outcasts, 
the ones who intermingled with foreigners, whose religion was far away from what it was supposed to be. They had disdain for the Samaritans, but this Samaritan who was a leper returned, and it was a surprise to them. And the point is that God's grace is extended to all. There's no limitation of who gets it, who doesn't get it, who deserves it, who doesn't deserve it. God's grace is available to all. But Jesus then says a very pointed thing at this, uh, for this man. He said, where are the other nine? Where are the other nine? And this is a very revealing thing. And this question was not directed at the leper who had been healed. Instead, the question was directed to those who were observing what had taken place. Those who had seen Jesus touch the lives of these ten poor men who had been uh, beaten down in life. And they had observed this. And Jesus asked, where are the other nine? There's a lesson here for them to learn. It's an incriminating statement. The other nine lepers, then, we know, had more than a skin problem. They had a heart problem. They had a heart problem. Something else is going on here this day. It is not just a problem with a physical disease. It's a heart disease. Thankfulness is related to the condition of our hearts. And sadly, God's people often have a heart problem. What do we do about that? Only the minority usually remember to offer thanks. Well, let me give an example of this in the history of Israel. The history of Israel, they were delivered in miraculous ways through a series of ten amazing plagues and miracles from the oppression of the Egyptian, the greatest empire on earth. And they left Egypt with these miracles. And God gave them riches. They plundered the Egyptians when they left. And the first thing the Israelites do when they get out and they're away from these circumstances, they start to complain. When they're pursued by Pharaoh's army, they complain. When there was a temporary shortage of food, they complained. When there was a lack of water, they complained. When they learned about possible giants in the land promised to them, they complained. When they lacked meat, they complained. Complain, complain, complain. That was their go-to default position to complain. Whenever things got rough, whenever things were not what they expected or what they wanted, then they complained. And Moses and Aaron recognized the danger of this, this mentality. And they told them in Exodus 16, 8, Who are we? You're not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. And we need to understand that our complaints are not against our circumstances, against people. They are in basically, they're against God, who is in control of all things. And we have a complaining spirit. We realize God is, we are blaming God for these things. So how do we escape this tendency, this default position to complain? How do we cultivate a thankful heart? So I'd like to do something rather simple this morning, and that is just read some passages together. To be reminded again of what God has called us to do and the people he has called us to be, not just at this time of year, but every day of our lives. So let's just read some passages together. So read them with me. So we start out with Psalm 95.2, and it says, Let us come before him with thanksgiving. We need to remember when we come before God, God himself, how are we to appear before him? It's with thanksgiving. It's like going to a, a, a main event or an important event, not dressed appropriately. You want to show up in your blue jeans and your old T-shirt uh, for a formal occasion? 
You want to be dressed appropriately. And we appear before God, it should be with an attitude of thanksgiving. How about Psalm 104? Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. When we come before God, it is to give thanks again. And thanks is equivalent with praise, we are told. You want to praise God? You thank God. How about 1 Chronicles 16.34? Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. We give thanks for God's character. He is a God who loves us. He is a God who is good. And then Psalm 107, verses 8, 15, and 21, the same thing is repeated. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. We give thanks for God's character and his care, not just what he does for us, but who he is. Psalm 136, 26 says, Give thanks to the God of heaven. His love endures forever. We give thanks to the God of heaven. This is the God who rules over all. And we are to recognize his greatness when we come before him. Jeremiah 33, 11b. Give thanks to the Lord Almighty. The Lord is good. Oh, we're not there. You're not reading with me. Okay. Let's try again. Give thanks to the Lord Almighty. For the Lord is good. His love endures forever. This is a great God. This is a God who is all-powerful, and we recognize that when we come before him. Now we can go to Ephesians 5.20. Always give thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our attitude of thanksgiving is based upon our relationship with God. He is our Father. And we give thanks for everything, not some things it says here, for everything, and this is rooted in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Then Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace, and be thankful. Peace is associated with community. We want peace, and it comes with community, and also with thankfulness. Peace is an outflow of thankfulness. Then finally, 1 Thessalonians 5, 18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Thanksgiving is not dictated by our circumstances, it says. In fact, this is the way God has designed us to be a thankful people. It should be what overflows from us is an attitude of thanksgiving. Now, Jeremy Little, when he preaches, he's always asking for help from the audience because I don't think he knows the answers. So I'm going to confess to you, I don't know the answers here. And I'm going to ask you to help me this morning. So looking at these verses that we just read through, besides the thread of thankfulness, what is the common theme of all those verses? Can you put it together? What is the common thread there? Praise is there. That's here. Okay. Looking for something more that has them all together? It's a command. I chose those verses because everyone is a command. Okay, now I'm going to ask you the harder question. Why do you think it's commanded? Why is Thanksgiving commanded? Because we're terrible at it. 
Yeah, particularly you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> We're terrible at Thanksgiving. We are terrible at it. We are like the nine lepers. Jesus asked the question when the one man returned, he asked the question, where are the other nine? Where are the other nine? They're here in this room today. Where are the other nine? We are not very good at thankfulness, and that is why it is commanded of us. So how do we cultivate a thankful heart? How do we remedy that? What should we know about thankfulness? Let me just share a few thoughts with you. First of all, we need to know that thanksgiving is a manifestation of faith. It is that starts with faith. In 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we are called to live by faith, not by sight. That is typical of our Christian lifestyle. We don't walk by what we see. We walk by what we don't see, what God has promised to us, and what God, who God is and what he has done in the past. And so thanksgiving may not be our feeling at the time, but it is based on truth, and we walk as people of faith, and we express thanksgiving and faith, whether we're thankful for it emotionally or not. Secondly, thanksgiving requires proactive intentionality. It does not occur naturally. Thanksgiving generally does not occur naturally. Otherwise, God would need to command it. The leper returned to offer praise and thanks. The other nine, they were not there. So we need to return to Jesus intentionally every day, every hour, and thank him for what he has done in our lives and for the overflow of blessings in our lives. It requires intentionality. Perhaps it's helpful to understand Thanksgiving by understanding what Thanksgiving is not. Because the opposites of Thanksgiving are victimhood, worry, discontent, complaining. These are the things that rob us of being thankful. In our society where everyone wants to play the victim card, or where people worry about things, or we're discontent with what we have or don't have, or what's happened or what hasn't happened, and we're like the Israelites and complain, we are being robbed of a thankful heart. And we need to be on guard for these attitudes and these blind spots in our lives. And then we need to understand that lack of thanksgiving is a heart and a perception problem. It's not a circumstance problem. It's not, not getting what we want. It's a matter of our own heart and how we perceive what God has given us or allowed in our lives. Is the glass half empty for us or is it half full is a very important question. And you can use Thanksgiving like a spiritual thermometer to actually determine whether you have a vital spiritual walk with God or not. If you are not thankful, then you need to look a little closer at your heart and see where you need to make a heart adjustment. But what are some practical steps we can do to cultivate a thankful heart? Let me just share a few ideas with you. How can we become a glass half full child of God? We can first of all practice the acts of prayer. Now there's many acronyms for how we should pray biblically. This is the standard old one. A stands for adoration. C stands for confession. T stands for thanksgiving. S stands for supplication. Notice where the S comes at the end. Asking God for things at the end after we've adored him, after we confessed our sins, after we've expressed thanks to him for what he's done, then we come to him in faith believing what he can do. This is important. And then we can also enumerate what we're thankful for. Those just don't say, thanks, God, for all the goody stuff you've given to me and what I am and whatnot. Amen. We tell God what we're thankful for. We try to enumerate them to him and say them back to him 
And he does, he lifts our spirit and he speaks to us, reminds us of our higher calling to walk with him. And then next, you might want to share that with others. Rather than just talking about the challenges in your life and the hard things you're going through, disappointments of life, share with others the things you're thankful for. Pass it around. Pay it forward. And then last, be thankful at Thanksgiving. We have a great opportunity this coming week to put this into practice and to actually express thanksgiving to God and what he's done in our lives. So maybe you want to have some guests in Thanksgiving, write on a whiteboard, the things they're thankful for, put on post-it notes. Maybe you want to read some passages centered on Thanksgiving around the table after you eat so the food doesn't get cold. And maybe get the younger members to read those passages and pass it on to the next generation, an attitude of Thanksgiving. Maybe spend time expressing thanks in prayer that morning and also express thanks and encouragement to those who join you for Thanksgiving. Really make it a thankful day. Well, several years ago when I was traveling by train in Japan, I was exchanged, I was stopped uh, and, uh, at a town called Morioka in the prefecture of Iwate, and I had time to go grab lunch and I uh, went into a local noodle shop. And there I observed something for the first time I've never seen before, and that was this customer. The waitress brought out a tray of 12 bowls of, of uh, 12 bowl, uh, a tray with 12 bowls containing noodles, and it's called soba. It's a buckwheat noodle, noodle. and uh, the cup is, or the, the bowl is called wanko, wanko soba. And I watched as this customer started eating the noodles quickly. She had a watch and timing him, and he ate all those 12 bowls, and then she brought another tray with another 12 bowls, and he ate all that, and he brought another tray with another 12 bowls, and I go, what's going on here? And this eventually kept up, and he put a, a lid on the bowl, stopped, and indicated he was finished, and she looked at her watch, wrote down something on a piece of paper, handed it to him, and I thought, what's that all about? And uh, I later learned it is a custom called Wanko Soba, and customers go in there in this competition to see how many bowls of soba they can eat within a 10-minute period. And for those who are thinking Guinness World Book of Records, you like to get your names in there, it's 383 bowls consumed in 10 minutes. So they are counting bowls of noodles. God has called us to count what? Our blessings. God has called us to count our blessings. Now, sometimes in life, and we, we get to James Coney Island, July 4th, you're counting how many hot dogs you ate. And uh, that's another story altogether. Or sometimes you're a dumb college student with names we will not mention, and you're counting how many Twinkies you can stuff into your mouth at one time and, and still talk. So we've done things like that, but God has called us to something much higher, and that is to count our blessings. We are to be glass half-full Christians all the time, not half-empty, but half-full when we count the blessings of God. So to help us count this morning, I'd like to, do, I'd like to take us to an old hymn. It's called Count Your Blessings. We're not going to sing it. I'm not going to make you listen to me sing this morning. But we're going to say the words together because there's some powerful words in this old hymn. So I'm going to read the verses to you, and I want you to repeat the refrain uh, together, okay? I want to make sure I get the right. The hymn is called Count Your Blessings. Let me read the first verse. When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged thinking all is lost, Count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord hath done. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God hath done. 
Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God hath done. Are you ever burdened with a load of care? Does a cross seem heavy you are called to bear? Count your many blessings, every doubt will fly, and you will be singing as the days go by. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God hath done. When you look at others with their lands and gold, think that Christ has promised you his wealth untold. Count your many blessings, money cannot buy your reward in heaven, nor your home on high. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God hath done. So amid the conflict, whether great or small, do not be discouraged, God is over all. Count your many blessings, angels will attend, help and comfort you to your journey's end. Count your blessings, name them one by one, Count your many blessings. See what God has done. God has called us to count our blessings. And I implore you to do that, not just week, but each day that comes. And to remember that, that there may be one blessing that some of you here cannot count today. And that's the blessing of eternal life. The blessing of forgiveness of sin that God gives us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you cannot honestly say you can count that blessing yet, We'd love to share that blessing with you. There'll be elders out here afterwards to pray with you, and they're also happy to share with you the good news that Jesus came to die for your sins. And not just to heal a skin disease, but to heal our hearts and have an eternal relationship with him. So come and speak to them, and they'll pray for you, or speak to a staff member or the friend that brought you here this morning. But I have to say here this morning, this glass, whether it's half empty or half full, is an inadequate illustration like many illustrations are. For the truth be told, if I wanted to illustrate God's blessings to us accurately, I would bring in the water hose, turn it on full blast, fill this up, let it run into the aisles. Deacons might have a problem with that. But it would pointedly illustrate that that is a way God has blessed us. God has blessed us to our cup overflows. We all know the shepherd psalm and in Psalm 23, which starts out, The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, you are with me. You prepare a table before me. And what is on that table? My cup. And what is the condition of my cup according to that psalm? It overflows. In the presence of my enemies, surely God's mercy and love will follow me all the days of my life. May you count your blessings.